I'm Jessica Livingston, and Carolyn Levy and I are the Social Radars. In this podcast, we talk to some of the most successful founders in Silicon Valley about how they did it. Carolyn and I have been working together to help thousands of startups at Y Combinator for almost 20 years. Come be a fly on the wall as we talk to founders and learn their true stories. Carolyn, today we have such an exciting guest. I'm so happy to have her on today. It's Adora Chung. Now, we've known Adora for years. YC funded her in 2010 with a company called Pathjoy. And I'm going to ask her to talk about that, but it evolved into a company then called Homejoy. And then she became a YC partner for five years and now has a new company. So let's just get into things, Adora. Welcome. We have so much to talk about with you. We got to start at the beginning, I guess. Yes. Sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? (laughs) Can you go back and tell the story about what Homejoy was and how it evolved? Yeah, so we started 2009-ish before we applied to YC with a company called Pathjoy. um, And it was a, funny enough, it sort of, we came back in a loop and came came back to the original idea almost. But it was a marketplace for services. And we were choosing which vertical to help. And we ended up on therapists and life coaches. And so that's how the name Pathjoy came about. It's it's like Path to Joy, something like that. Um, and that's what we apply to YC with. And for a number of reasons, we couldn't, we got a lot of people on the supply side to put up their services, but we couldn't get the demand going. And so, um, during YC, we started pivoting and I would say for the next two years, we were pivoting around for an idea that would work. And we ended up eventually on Homejoy, which was a marketplace for home service providers and we're known mostly for cleaning. But yeah, I think we pivoted a dozen times. I can't even remember all the pivots at this point. That's important. You pivoted yeah. around a dozen times. Yeah. Like that is a lot of pivoting. And there was something unique though about Homejoy, which was you were solving a problem that at least Aaron, your brother and co-founder had. So can you yes. tell the listeners about that? Yeah, we were working on, I forgot what we were working on at the time. You were working on the, um, you were making a site for entertainment news. Oh, yes, that's right. So we, um, to make money, the little money we could, um, because we didn't raise that much money leading up to this, we created, uh, back then there was this thing called demand media. There were a lot of just like people creating content machines where you create like a bunch of websites, you SEO the terms and stuff like that. And one of the big um, places where you could acquire users really quickly was Google News. I don't know if that exists anymore, but um, basically we put up one of the things that people like to read about is entertainment news. And I think this was probably before TMZ and stuff like that. And so we put up a site for that and got a lot of users that way and made a little bit of money doing that. Um, but yeah, we were really focused on scaling out this idea of a content machine and working on that. But at the same time, Aaron, who he's a pretty simple person, but you know, he doesn't like to cook. He doesn't like to clean. I mean, he's a typical bachelor guy. And he um, was trying to find a good cleaner basically to help him with some of that stuff. And he just ran into this issue of just not being able to find someone good. And so he sort of um, just presented the idea. I was like, this sounds like a problem not just me, but probably a lot of other people have, then let's go down that path and try to verify that idea. And so that's how, that's how that started. We got our first customers were in Mountain View at that time. And so we put up a phone number on site. People start calling us, asking us what our service was. By this time, we hadn't convinced a cleaner to work with us yet. We were just, we, we learned from the first time, get the demand, like see if there's demand first. Um, right. And there's probably plenty of supply. I forget who our first customer was, um, how they found us. But we did a lot of posting posters down Mountain View. We, you know, it was during the hot summer months when we started. And so to get people to talk to us about our company, there was a festival on that street, on Castro Street. And we looked out um, bottle, uh, bottles of water, iced water out and gave them out and try to get people to sign up. And eventually someone signed up and it turned out to be this, huge house in like Los Altos Hills or somewhere. And we hadn't found a cleaner yet. And so of course we were actually, I was a cleaner. Um, so I showed up, 
Um, I think I brought, I forgot who I brought with me, but I showed up. It was this huge house, had never cleaned a house in my life. I mean, obviously I cleaned my own apartment, but to clean an entire home this big and it was under construction, which is like another whole mess because there's dust everywhere and the dust would keep coming back once you started cleaning. Yeah. Um, and it took me forever to clean <laughs> that house. Just took me over 12 hours. And I don't even think I really did that great of a job. Um, and so once we started getting more customers, um, we were able to start building up the supply side of the equation and get other people who knew how to clean efficiently. It's actually pretty simple to clean, but it's the efficiency of doing it. That's the hard part and doing it in an order and sequence that gets it done in a, in a timely manner. But you took this to an extreme by you cleaned more than just that one place. I mean, did oh, yeah. you used to go up to San Francisco and yes. sleep in your car? <laughs> so um, in that period of figuring out, I didn't know how to clean. Um, Aaron's first thought is, let's go get books to learn how to clean. And so we have these cleaning books. <laughs> I love um, that. That obviously is not the way to learn how to clean efficiently. And so I was like, okay, I just got to learn by doing. And so I got a job as a cleaner for this cleaning company in San Francisco. Um, and so, you know, there you start in the morning. So we're, I was in Mountain View. By the way, part of the story is I applied to many cleaning jobs trying to get a job to learn how to clean. And they all mostly rejected me except for this one company in San Francisco. Why? Wait, what? And so that's why I ended up in San Francisco, not just in Mountain View doing what? that job. Yeah, why did they reject you? I think, um, I don't, I think they're, I don't have any experience clearly. And it was just sort of this, why are you with, you know, why, why are you coming to us wanting this? Like, why don't you go get an engineering job? Go get some other job. Like, what is it? I think there's you like, had a PhD or graduate degree in computer science, right? I spent four years in a PhD program for economics. Oh, okay. And, yeah. um, but it's, I mean, it's, the, there's a lot of people look searching for these jobs. And so you got to be really good at this to like really get that, that particular job. Um, so anyway, I got this job in San Francisco, had this great partner. She really, she actually taught me how to clean. Um, I think she didn't know what to do with me in the beginning, but you know, you got to, the first job is like at seven, seven o'clock, six thirty, seven o'clock. And so I had to, I lived in Mountain View at that time. And so to get to the job on time, you know, you're either in traffic mm -hmm. a lot going yeah, up mm -hmm. the highway, or you have to just get there really early, like four o'clock in the morning and just like sleep there in the car for a little bit, take a nap and then go do the job. Then I could come back down um, like around three o'clock maybe to get back to work on, on the company. Sleep in the car in San Francisco. Yeah, there's a, um, I don't, it's probably not there anymore, but there is around four things. There was like a McDonald's somewhere there um, in Soma. And I think that's where I You like brushed your teeth in the McDonald's bathroom or something, right? I remember some little nugget yeah, like that. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I was a little crazy back then, but I was You weren't just scared at all sleeping in your car? No, I think San Francisco was fine <laughs> at that time. Okay, so you get this hands-on experience. I have to ask this really tangential question. What did you learn from clean about how to clean? How do you clean efficiently? Um, it's the right tools, first and foremost. Um, so the right um, cloths to use, the mop, vacuums, everything. Um, and, and the right uh, uh, liquids essentially chemicals. And so some of these companies really have like it figured out. They have like, like four bottles and you do this for that glass. This is for the microwave. This is for the oven, stuff like that. Um, and then after that, it's the sequence in which you do it. So you want to go from top to bottom in to out. And, and then it's also the way you split the work. So if you go with a partner, if you can split the work in a certain way, you can get things done much quicker. Okay. Um, so it's not, it's not, you know, rocket science, but it's just sort of things you wouldn't think of until you actually need to do it within, and you got to get in and out within an hour or two hours, essentially. So this is a time gig. Let me just ask though, while you're actually literally cleaning homes and learning how to do it, meanwhile, Aaron or you or somebody, you're trying to get this, the, um, you're trying to hire cleaners and stuff, right? So you, you know, there's like an end, you know, you're not going to be doing this for very long. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I think it was, I wanted to make sure the jobs I was doing for our own company was going well. And also it allowed me to figure out how to onboard cleaners on our end much better. Um, and what are the right, right questions to ask 
and so, okay, stuff like so that. How, for how long was this particular period of yours of, of, of time that you did? I did it for about a month. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, I think that company still owes me my last paycheck, but it was because I, didn't, <laughs> I had forgotten. I lost the shirt they gave me. And so you were supposed to return back all the stuff. I, no, that's actually not legal. Me. You have to get your last paycheck. Even if the, oh. you can't put conditions okay. <laughs> on payroll, you can't like they do owe you that shirt or no shirt. <laughs> Maybe the shirt was lost in Aaron's messy Maybe apartment. Maybe the paycheck was yes, lost in Aaron's apartment. Wait, wait. So just, just to point out the irony, the two people running the cleaning startup had the messiest apartment. Is that what, is that what the message Oh, is? yes. Oh, <laughs> yes. Funny. You're creating this marketplace because it's yep. basically on-demand cleaners. Yes. Um, and so you are now getting to be experts on both sides. How did you then get things kicked off with the marketplace and acquiring users. And like, wasn't it sort of like a land rush business at that point? Cause this is in 2012. It wasn't for like a good six, nine months. I think we were sort of by ourselves in terms of like a tech business trying to kind of corner this market. It was just little by little, like we, for the, on the cleaner side, we posted on Craigslist and uh, just met with people and, really try to convince them that we do have customers and that they are going to get paid on time and all these things. You know, the cleaning business is sort of not the best businesses in the world. And so a lot of people get screwed over. And so we were just trying to make sure that we are going to pay you on time and we're legitimate. And on the demand side, it was just, we put up a website. We put, I think the biggest thing we actually did was put a phone number on there and we get calls at all random times. But I think, you know, when you're not a well-known company, just having a way for you to contact them and hear you on the phone was, I think, important. And so we were able to get, you know, a few people in the door that way on top of just handing out flyers and stuff like that around Mountain View. We got a few people and then people just started talking about us and it sort of rolled from there. Before we raised a proper seed round, we didn't do any advertising because we just didn't have the money to do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was just referral based in the very beginning. Okay. But you guys then became experts in user acquisition or Aaron always already was yes, an expert. Aaron is the genius in this. Okay. Uh, he's very good at um, conversion funnel stuff. I mean, I do this a lot with product funnels and stuff like that, but he's very good at just looking at the numbers and running the ads and trying to get your customer acquisition costs down and stuff like that. Did you know you always wanted to start something with him? No. No, not at all. Um, he actually, I think, got into startups a little bit during school. He went to MIT, which is like a hub of just like entrepreneurs about to, yeah. or uh, soon to be entrepreneurs. And so he got into it probably his first year, freshman year of college. I got, I didn't even know about startups or tech stuff really until mm. grad school when a friend just like came by and was like, I need help with this the startup I'm doing. Like he needed a programmer. And so I just started helping him with that. You knew how to program. You just didn't know about startups. Yes. Yes. I was a comp sci major in an undergrad. Um, and then, yeah, I, uh, I didn't want any of the jobs that I could get at that point. So that's why I went to grad school for economics, but, um, I hadn't done any web programming, for example, it was all the stuff I was taught was more desktop applications, C, C++, stuff like that. And so it just never occurred to me that, you know, Silicon Valley actually existed. By the way, I'm from South Carolina. So like, that's, that's my world Clemson, at, at right? that time. Okay. Yeah. Clemson, yes. And I remember you telling me once that your mom was not that psyched about you guys doing a startup. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I mean, your kid goes to MIT and then all of a sudden he's working on it, on something that she doesn't know where it's going. And there, I mean, we're an immigrant family. And so like the kind of the next step is like, get a good job, go work at McKinsey or Goldman Sachs or one of these places. And so, um, yeah, she just, she wasn't too happy. I don't even know if she still understands today what's going on. Um, <laughs> so wait, the, the exact quote I remember from Adora is that her mom said, what have you done with my star child? Meaning Aaron. <laughs> yes, he is the star child. <laughs> Like you could have chosen anyone else, but you chose him to get him into this mess. But you chose my star child to, you know, like, like it was Adora's fault <laughs> that Aaron wanted to do a startup. Because <laughs> there are four of you, right? Four siblings? 
there's four of us. And you know who, um, you know, my current co-founder is my other brother, Alex. I didn't know that. No way. Yes. And I just learned, apparently I had said something to him at some point where he was convinced also to, or actually Aaron, Aaron graduated, but he dropped out of school um, to just like focus on programming and software engineer and getting software engineer jobs and stuff like that. And so I didn't even know that until recently. I was like, oh God, this is a double whammy for yeah. me at this point. But And so he wasn't greasing the skids for your, your mother and her, you know, to ability cope. to comprehend <laughs> the dropping. Yes, yeah, her ability to cope. No. <laughs> That's funny. Oh wow. We're gonna talk about Instalab a little bit later. I still want to go back to Homejoy. Paul reminded me, I had forgotten this. But he, you were raising money, I forget which round, and no one was really that interested. And yep. so he tweeted your like revenue growth chart yes. anonymously, like he didn't say it was your company, and suddenly lots of interest. Yes. Do you feel like that was just people weren't interested in like the cleaning business, or do you think it's because you're a woman? I I mean, honestly, I, I obviously I don't know the actual answer to that. It's mm -hmm. I don't think it was the cleaning business. I think everyone was into the on-demand model at that point. So if you could like shove any sort of sort of vertical in that, you sort of could probably raise money if you're growing really fast. And so, yeah, then the other what are the other factors that could be? It could be a female founder. You know, it could be a number of things. I mean, I remember at some point I actually asked Aaron to stop coming to meetings with me because it was like. Hey, I'm the I'm the CEO over here. Ask me the questions. These are questions I can answer. Um, and because I'm an engineer too, I didn't need like I didn't need Aaron in the room with me. I could just answer all the technical questions, all the product questions, and business questions. And I think that helped me a bit. Like them just focusing on me as being leader of the company. Oh, interesting. It's such a familiar story. Co-founder, male, female. The investors only talk to the male co-founder. We hear that a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, not, it's a little bit frustrating. But yeah, I, I, I'm sure that was part of it. it um, but, you know, who knows? Another question I usually don't ask about, but I'm going to ask you, ask you because I trust you to be honest about this. Why did your company fail? I used to think when companies fail, there's like probably this like one, one thing that caused it to happen. But the more I look back on this, um, I just think there were a number of things. But I can maybe I can just like highlight two or three of them if yeah because I don't have the time to go through all of it. Um, the number one thing is for that I think happened is we is that we rapidly scaled a broken product essentially, and so I think it's okay to scale a product that's not fully there. It's a little bit broken, stuff like that. But we were just pumping the growth on something that wasn't clearly working. And what do I mean by that? Um, so the product itself was people essentially booking cleaning and the cleaning get done. And that worked really well when we were just in San Francisco and LA, that was the first two markets. But once we started getting more cleaners on the platform and more jobs getting done, um, that, that product, when you scale that product, you have to have different features and you have to have different, you know, operational techniques to get that all done in a smooth manner. And so instead of pausing or maybe just slowing down growth a little bit, we were just essentially scaling up like this thing that just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And so mm -hmm. you can sort of see it in the numbers. Like I tell most people who are just who are building marketplaces, like or any type of consumer type company, like you can look at retention, you can look at your review ratings, like one star to five star, you can look at NPS and all this kind of thing. But ultimately, you just go back and look yeah. at retention. And um, like I said, in the beginning, our retention was great. And then I think it just like started slowly going down. And then I think there's always this threshold that it's different for every company. But if your retention numbers get below a certain point, like you should stop. <laughs> you should stop and fix the thing and go. But I think as a first time founder, it's just, you're just addicted to growth and you want to keep growing. You've got investors who are telling you, yeah, keep growing, keep growing, keep growing. You can, you can fix it along the way, but you know, it just gets complicated. Our company, I don't know, it got to almost 300 people at some point, not including the contractors, the cleaners on the platform. And as you add more people to it, the communication overhead gets a lot harder and it's just 
hard to fix things. And so, you know, even something small like putting in one new feature took weeks of rollout because it's not just, and we were just in, we're in a lot of cities. And so it's not just like, let's roll out to everyone in San Francisco. It's you got to have this whole plan to roll out to everywhere. And then you can't iterate because did that feature work or not? That took about a month to figure out. And it's just like rolling back or just trying to improve on it was just very hard. And so I think if we had done the thing where we're just like, we're in three or four cities, really got the product, grew really fast in those cities, figured out how to get to some level of growth with those good retention numbers, we would have been much better off going to like the 30 other cities that we went to. Oh, wow. You went to 30 other cities. Yeah. And so it was just too aggressive. I mean, we were in Europe at that time. Oh my gosh. Wow. We were just everywhere very fast. And then there was also, we got into a price war, like this whole cleaning thing became like a bunch of companies started coming into the space. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, we got into price war. Like we started offering $19 cleanings, like how can you make money on $19 cleaning? So the answer is you can't um, because you got to, you got to pay, you know, the cleaners to do the job and they're not going to do that job for $19. Right. Um, I mean, the idea was get them in the door and then get them to, you know, um, look at the next cleaning. But if your retention numbers aren't there, then that next cleaning sometimes doesn't come um, or a lot of times doesn't come. And so, um, yeah, I, I think like, the companies we're competing against, we just all end up like around the $19 price for some reason. Um, and I don't think that worked yeah. out for anyone, um, honestly. I mean, lesson learned there is you should know what your competitors are doing. That's smart. But you shouldn't be, you know, measuring yourself against them. Like build your own high quality product. The prices don't have to come down. Like people will pay for high quality. And so right. um, that was the mistake yeah. there. Um, Yeah, I would say those are the two main things that really, if we had um, maybe paused a little bit and turned the corner a little bit and stopped doing those things, would the company still be running? Maybe. I'm not sure, but it would have (laughs) definitely helped uh, a whole lot. As this started to fall apart and you kind of realized like, oh, maybe we're going to shut this down. Were you and Aaron totally in sync on that stuff? Yes and no. I think we disagreed on some things, um, but... I think like there was a disagreement within the company on just taking like one's the right down just to stop this and take down growth and just fix it. Um, and so, you know, I obviously didn't make that decision in time, whereas some people were like ringing alarm bells a little bit earlier. Oh, yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, um, it is what it is, I suppose. But um, yeah, I think at the, at the very end, we were pretty aligned on like, here's the outcome and here's yeah. the lessons learned. And Here's what, if we'd ever do anything again, here's what we wouldn't do and do. So after Homejoy, you became a Y Combinator partner. Yes. Um, I want to talk about experiences you had on the other side. What did you learn from in from your like five years of advising startups? Um, that's a good question. Well, it's definitely easier <laughs> to give advice than to actually take it and do it. I, I think I learned a lot of what good founders are made of, I suppose, just from seeing so many people come in the door and the qualities they all bring. When you interview founders and you're reading the applications and stuff like that, you sort of get this understanding of like, if they're, are they good at communicating? Do they seem like they're going to run through the walls? Do they have perseverance? Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I think the one thing I've learned is it's not just that there's a, like a sub quality there from like being able to run through walls, which is um, what's the best way to say it there? One of my favorite shows is Ted Lasso and he has this quote, be a goldfish. And so it's that quality, which is like shit happens every day. Good things and bad things happen every day. And I think the good founders, they will take the bad thing. They'll take the lesson learned immediately and they'll just like move on and they'll just like forget about whatever that thing is. Yeah. But if you're the type of person that dwells on that and, you know, just you start becoming one of those like overthinkers thinking too much about bad things and then just not um, being able to move on and move past that. And you, your decision-making abilities take longer and longer. And so you kind of like aren't able to move the startup forward. And so I think just when founders get stuck in there, it's just trying to identify that moment and try to like unwind them a little bit and help them move on. And that is something I learned where I could be helpful in those moments, I think. Because founders, it is good when they're decisive. Oh, yeah, you have to be. Yeah. Um, move, things are moving too quick for you to 
take days to make a decision. Yeah, cycling is a bad sign. Um, that's something you learn pretty fast. Do you remember any crazy stories from from YC? <laughs> oh, there is one. I think so. Um, one of the, so my favorite things to do at YC beyond you know chatting with founders that were in the program was reading applications and. I love that. I think a lot of people didn't, but I, this is one of my favorite activities. And then um, startup school. So I was part of startup school for a while. And it wasn't my favorite moment in the moment, but looking back, it's just like this crazy thing that happened. So we were at demo day. Right now, startup school is like everyone, you, apply, you, you just sign up and you do it. Back then, there was an application process because uh, we were trying to put people in the group so that they could get mentored by other YC alum. And so you can't have an infinite number of um, startups doing startup school. um, Let me interrupt you though. When you're talking about startup school, you're talking, it was online at this point. Yes. Not the, because startup school comes up in almost every episode and it's usually the in-person, the original in-person event. So I just wanted to point out this is, you know, they morphed into an online version. This is like it's, 2017, 2018, I think, right? Around 2017? Yeah. yeah. I, I, yeah I know the yeah. story and I remember it vividly. Go on, <laughs> I remember go on. it too, so, but, but not enough that I'm not excited to hear it. <laughs> um, and so we were in the middle of demo day and just I'm helping lots of founders out and we're about to put this announcement out of like who got into startup school, the mentoring part of this the session. And then all of a sudden, these emails go out. And what we realized is we told the people who didn't get in that they got in, and then the opposite for the people who got in. And Ugh. so we were just like, oh, no. And so for our first reaction was like, just apologize for it. It's like, oh. And then we just started realizing, oh, no, okay, there are, we've just like screwed a bunch of people over. Um, like thousands. I remember it was thousands of people. Yeah. Startup school is this huge monster. Like every, like a lot, a lot of people are involved with it um, or signed up for it. And so it was middle of demo day and just a lot of hectic things going on. And I think it was Jared who basically was like, Hey, um, why don't we just let everyone in the door? And I sort of was like, Oh, cause I'm the one like part, I'm like the one running this thing. Jared's not running it. I got to deal with all this. I'm like, oh God, no, that's horrible. That's a horrible idea. But I think at the end of the day, when I thought through like, okay, what is the mission of startup school? What, what are we doing here? And that's to teach everyone in the world who wants to become an entrepreneur, how to go through that process. And so I was like, okay, we'll figure it out and let's just let everyone in. And so that was the genesis of startup school having basically no application process and you just like sign up and do it. Um, and I think it was for the better. It was a little bit, we had to like restructure at the point um, Jeff was working on this with, I was working with Jeff on this and we just had to restructure a lot of stuff, but, um, but we made it happen. Talk about turning lemons into lemonade. There was a moment where I was like super angry. And I was like, Oh God, you got to just QA this stuff. Like some, you're going to send out like thousands of emails. Like, I remember thinking, why the hell did they do this on demo? Yeah, that's like just never double book yourself when it comes to demo day because demo day is like yes, you're stretched. Yes. Yeah, I was actually. Um, you asked about anecdotes while she was partner at YC, but I was actually wondering if you have any anecdotes from your batch from summer ten. Um, oh, so long ago. I, you know, what do I remember? Um. I met some of my best friends are from that batch. Um, Yuri Sagaloff was in Yuri, there, right? Yeah, Yuri. Um, I'm, I'm a, it's like a circle of life sort of YC. It's like you become friends with all these people and then you become investors in the company. So I'm, I'm an LP and um, Yuri's fun. Yeah. Um, he, who was like probably the most underrated VC, he probably hates that word, but investor <laughs> in, in Silicon Valley. Um, he's, uh, but he's so good. Um, yeah. Who else? There was Ewan, um, who started a company, invested in his company. Adam Goldstein from Hit, um, from Hitmonk. Oh, Hitmonk. Yeah. 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 He started a new company recently in biotech, investor in awesome. that company. Oh, wow. Um, he, so it was Pager Duty, Solomon, who also became Docker. Uh, Docker. Yeah. Pager Duty, Docker. Pager Duty, Docker. There was Hitmonk. And then um, I'm forgetting that. Oh, Francis and Ed from Tabzilla, who started a new company called Flex, which is like wow. humongous right now. Um, oh, wow. 
Yeah. And I don't, that it was, the memories are really not really from the batch, but from afterwards when we had time to just chill out a little bit. And like, we would, we try to recreate the weekly dinners by, you know, the, the, the people who hung out, stayed around Mountain View and Palo Alto, we would go out, like try to go out once or, you know, every other week to get dinner or drinks. Um, down on California Ave, there's like Antonio's Nut House, which apparently doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And yes, it's gone. Antonio's Nut House. Yeah. Yeah. Not that I went there a lot, but I walked past there every day to my favorite breakfast yeah. joint. I think my mom, I was trying to think batch memories, maybe it was demo day. So back then, you guys, all these investors, and you try to cram them into that one Mountain View office. And so you have to do, you had so many investors that batch. And so you had like to do three sessions. Do you remember this? Yes. And oh, because it was in the the Pioneer Way office. Yes. And we just physically did not have the space. So we yes. just had a, a whole slew of demo days. Painful. Yeah. And I did not do demo day really well. I remember the first time I did it, I there were like all these people and their heads were bopping like this. And I was just too focused on the head bopping. And then all of a sudden they're like a woman just like bops her up really high, like over here. And it's Demi Moore. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> What is she oh, doing talked here? talked about her recently. And I just like totally <laughs> forgot what I was supposed to say. And I just like went out. I don't know what I said during that, during the first one. The second session was okay. And the third session, I was just like, it was hot, I think. It was super hot that day. And I was like almost stroking out. And I should yeah. have brought water we, with me. And I just We don't didn't even... have great AC or fan situations. Yeah. Um, and I just, yeah, I just remember... Uh, I didn't pass out, but it's like, I was like, oh God, I just need to like focus and not pass out right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, things are much better with uh, these demo days. I suppose. Oh. <laughs> they're all online now, so there's no passing out. No, they're more organized and professionally run and more bathrooms <laughs> to accommodate the guests cool and all that air sort of stuff. And the like. But- <laughs> <laughs> um, so I want to jump to something that no one really knows about. Yes. That happened around 2020, uh, around the presidential election. You disappeared from the startup world to apply your knowledge behind the scenes to the Democratic Party without their knowledge. Am I describing it correctly? Yes. After Trump got elected in 2016, I remember that day because we were just finishing interviews and we had just discovered this because, you know, we're not looking at everything during the day. And it was just sort of this disbelief and like, oh, God, what's going on? And so I think my inkling to do something started that day and and sort of like, yeah, let's give Trump a chance. But, you know, dot, dot, dot. Um, and so when when I was at YC, um, they were very gracious and let me take some time off to just focus on how can I put my skills to help Trump get not reelected to elect Biden, essentially. Um, And so, and part of that also, honestly, I don't know if I should really say this, but um, my parents voted for Trump. And my first thing I wanted to do, because I didn't know if they were going to vote for them or not, was to go to Wisconsin and just like find a few voters and make sure they voted for Biden. So I could like, like undo cancel out their votes. Um, and so, and, and so that's where I actually started was in Wisconsin. Just, I was like talking to voters there and just trying to figure out like, what can I do to get people in a swing state? Cause right. that's a swing state too. That's, that's. Yes. Wait, things. your parents live, were living in Wisconsin. Yes. Oh, okay. So you were really going local here with this. Solution. Yeah. I, okay. I put up Craigslist postings. I was just trying to meet people. I was like, taking people to coffee, like, Hey, you know, how can I, I want to understand, you know, you know, what your, who you voted for last time and like, where are you thinking now? And just trying to, trying to do that. Talking to users, I guess, is is what I was attempting to do. Um, And I did that for a little bit, but it wasn't, it was clearly like not going to scale. That's what the candidates should be like are doing. Like they meet a lot of people and they convince them to try to vote for them. And that's not my purpose. And, um, I started looking more on this is during COVID, of course. Oh my and gosh. so I just, someone, um, pointed to vote by mail as something to look into. And I forgot who it was. And, um, so vote by mail, obviously a lot of people had to register to do that. And 
therefore um, get the ballots in the mail and then obviously send it in. And I just realized at that point, I was like, oh, this, a lot of these states are allowing this to happen now. Um, and this is probably the way, like a lot of people don't go vote because they don't right. want to stand in line yeah, and, um, and deal with that. But now that, now that you don't have to go stand in line, like this is the way to get people to vote and you can like get people who otherwise wouldn't have more so than you would if they had to go vote in person. Um, and so I just started looking deeply into that. And then what I discovered was when you go sign up to vote by mail, first of all, all the sites that you go do it is kind of clunky. It's very hard to do. And surprise, surprise. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it, it's, you know, it's just a little bit hard to do in some States. It's like, I remember in Florida, um, they're always trying to check the voter registration base to let you sign up to vote by mail. In Florida, like they had some bugs in their form. And for example, if you had like a an accent on your uh, on your name and you didn't put it in, you just put E instead of the accent and E, like it wouldn't go through. Um, and so it just said you weren't registered. And stuff oh my like God. That. And so they're just, and you know, in Florida, there's, you know, a lot of people with sure. accents and yeah. names, of course. Um, anyways, the, so that was part of it is just that realization, okay, people need help probably, you know, what's the actual website and stuff like that. And the other piece then was, okay, how do I get people to the site to finally register to vote? Because once you have that information, they registered to vote by mail, then you can contact them and make sure they got the ballots and stuff like that. Um, oh, I should say the other unique piece about this is the vote by mail, um, you could get a lot from the election offices in terms of data on if people um, registered to vote by mail, when the ballot got actually sent to them and if the ballot got returned, you didn't know if they, sure. who you voted for, but you could see one ballot. So you can wow. see like sort of in terms of like a conversion funnel, you can back out sort of like, you know, where they are in that funnel. If you have that, inf- if you have their information. And so then it became going back a little bit further. Okay. How do we get people to submit that information to us so that we can track them and make sure that they voted or continue like badger them until they voted. Um, and that was, uh, through ads, essentially, because that's how you reach a lot of people at scale, obviously, is through ads. And so I sort of looked at it and I was like, okay, someone must have figured this out. This is a very obvious thing at this point that this is, there should be someone running a lot of ads and optimizing the conversion funnel to get voter information, making sure that they successfully sign up to vote by mail and that at the right times, they get to the next steps of submitting the ballot and the ballot actually gets returned. I started running ads myself at some point, and but I was just sort of like, someone must have been doing this already. This seems like the most obvious thing to do. It's like a, t- it's like so such a typical e-commerce type thinking. And but then I started searching around for this, and no one was really doing it. There was an organization in which we started a pack together called Tech for Campaigns that had been running some similar experiments, and so I basically went to them, and we decided to start this. Um, for the general election um, because they had run some experience and so they had some knowledge already. And they were the only ones who were even thinking about it this way, at least from from, from end-to-end funnel. There are a lot okay. of organizations out there who will just do the ads, meaning they'll just put up the ads and then their success is whether someone clicked on the ads. But they don't get it to like that they actually submit the ballot or right. that they actually vote. And so it's just a putting all these pieces together. As far as I know, no one was doing and so I started this, the team, um, I recruited one of my former batchmates, Mark Lindsay, to yeah. um, help me run this. And he ran most of the tech part of this. And so he brought in engineers to start this up. We brought in some marketing folks and I was the one mostly working on the ads with the designer and just analyzing the entire funnel and doing the optimizations. Um, and obviously to do this. So we put it together. We were able to go through the Florida primaries. That was the last primary in which we were able to test this Had really great results. We were able to show that our ads resulted in more people voting than, um, than they otherwise wouldn't have. And then, so we took those learnings and decided we're just going to go all out onto the general election and just, so we picked five some states to run this in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Minnesota, Michigan, Florida, and raised money for these states. Uh, and 
obviously the biggest funder of that was Jessica <laughs> herself. <laughs> Thank you very much. Paul, Paul and me. Paul and yep. Jessica. And they put in, they were the biggest funder of the whole entire campaign. Um, and yeah, and we got the votes in. I mean, you know, who, who knows how much we actually influenced everything, but in those swing states, we got a lot of votes in. So I have a really quick question, because in theory, what Adora is describing here, it's nonpartisan, because in theory, the entire electorate benefits from having optionality when it comes to how they vote for a million different reasons. So this yeah. isn't obviously, you know, Democrat versus Republican. Yes. Yeah. I was ahead. just going to point yeah. the same point out. I was just going to say this wasn't impacting right. which way people were voting. It was merely getting people who wouldn't have otherwise voted yeah, it's to Yeah, ex- it's vote. accessibility. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we targeted certain people for this. And honestly, the ads that worked well were the, the most nonpartisan right. ads ever. It was just like, reminder, you've got two days yeah. to sign yeah. up to do this. Reminder, you got one more day. Um, and just those were the ones that drove the most, um, the most uh, signups in. But your efforts had a big impact in certain swing states, I remember. Yeah, I think so. We were able to track and follow around 270,000 voters to submit an actual vote. And where we likely made a huge contribution was in two states, one Pennsylvania, where we got around 50,000 votes in, and the margin of win there was just 80,000 votes. In Wisconsin, where we got 40,000 votes in, and the margin of win there was around 20,000 votes. So, of course, we can't be sure how many votes we were 100% responsible for, but we did make a deliberate effort to avoid cannibalizing other initiatives by finding people who weren't likely to vote otherwise. What do you think the biggest takeaways are from this? So, overall, the key high-level takeaways I've gotten from this whole entire process are, one, it's this is a complex, but it doesn't have to be a hard and costly problem. When you have the right mindset and the right data set, you don't need that much innovation or money to efficiently get the votes in. Um, People do want to vote at some level. So like Carolyn mentioned before, your job is to just make it as easy as possible to get them from start to finish. And I just think big donors should not give money to organizations who can't show they are metrics driven and being efficient with their dollars. I think too much today goes to waste. The second I touched on a little bit before, which is government forms, in particular their photo registration and vote by mail forms, need to massively improve. As far as I'm concerned, you're like my hero for doing that, Adora. <laughs> and like you did this all literally behind the scenes. Even like the Democratic Party did not know you were doing this. I try to explain it also to people to this day, and I think they're just like, really? That like that was it? That worked? And I just sort of, yeah, like. Nobody is doing this. Nobody's just optimizing that entire funnel. You just got because it's too separate. Like people are just charged in charge of different things, and no one just comes together and puts the whole funnel together. And that's the important piece. And you know, one of the things like I, there was an organization that had more money than us to do vote by mail. We were probably the second biggest organization in terms of money to do this, and they were just running ads like meme type ads, meme ads. And I was just like, is that really working? So we tested this. We took their ads. Yeah. Put it on in our funnel. And yes, the click through rate on that ad was extremely high because it's like funny. People yeah. don't want to click on it. But the follow through and actually getting it to sign up to getting them registered to vote was like zero percent. And so there's this money just being wasted doing these things because they're not tracking the whole entire thing. Uh, uh, anyway, it's such I, I a waste get, of money. Yes. They need more people like you. The, the, the DNC needs more Dora Chunks. And Mark <laughs> Lindsay's and your whole team. This is my own personal opinion, but I feel like I did it. <laughs> um, I want to shift to your new your new thing. Yes. Instalab. I, I want you to tell me everything because, Carolyn, do you know much about it? I, I do not. So I'm glad we're going to dive in. <laughs> Let's dive in. Uh, so we – so Instalab – I'll tell briefly about it and why I'm doing it. Um, so Instalab, we're an at-home blood testing service that teaches coaches people on how to optimize their health and how to reach peak health. And we're tar- our target audience is busy people. So founders, executives, working parents. And the reason why we're targeting that sort of comes from my own place of my health going, going backwards, essentially. Um, but busy people in general 
they found well founders because I know um, they know that they're making their startup the top priority, and they know that they're not. They should be focusing on their health, but they don't have time for that. And so, it's sort of trying to get people in a place of first you got to understand where you're at in terms of your where is your health at, and then what are the time efficient things you can do to like make sure you're going in the right direction and not the wrong direction. You know, if you go to a doctor, they might tell you, you know, you got to change your diet like drastically and you got to do all these things. You got to exercise for, you know, three hours or four hours a week and stuff like that. And sort of, we're just taking the approach of, we want to understand where you're currently at and then what are the baby steps to get you in the right direction. And so I started this company because after Homejoy, I had a bunch of health issues that I had to like kind of reverse. I had gained a lot of weight my lipids, my cholesterol was really high, hypertension, um, metabolic issues, stuff like that. Just the whole Were you eating things. junk food, processed food? Oh, yeah, that McDonald's? was part of the like McDonald's. Yeah, I mean, um, to this day, employees at our company will make fun of me when I meet up with them for, for, for a social hour or whatever. And yeah, my diet was out of convenience, not, it wasn't for taste or, or, sustenance or anything. It was just like need energy to move on to get through the day. Mm. And it was a lot of caffeine, drinking Ugh. Red Bulls. Like I drink four or five Red Bulls Ugh. a day. It was anyway, too much caffeine. Um, Let me take a sip oh of coffee God. and think about that. <laughs> I started reading a lot about health and reading a lot of research and tests you can take to, you know, see like where you're at, your genetics and stuff like that. And just sort of had this realization after talking to multiple physicians, just like I had accumulated a lot of life debt, I guess is what you call it. So like in, in, in engineering, we have this term called tech debt, which is basically you keep piling code and you don't really, you know, fix things. And as you keep piling in the code, it just becomes harder and harder to like fix it in the future. Um, and you know, and, and this is what I mean by life debt is like you, if you don't, if you accumulate all these health problems when you're younger, there's all these, these like diseases associated with old age, like heart attacks, dementia, things like that. Like that's how you rapidly get into the mode of getting to that kind of category. And so I just started looking, I was like, you know what, I could have like totally fixed this or if I just known the issue existed. And then just known, like, how do I fit that into my lifestyle of, like, how I could have just, you know, instead of, you know, doing X, I could have been doing Y, things like that. And so part of the whole concept is, like I said, it's targeted around busy people. And so we don't, we try to not make you think too much about it or you don't have, like, we're like, you don't need to go to doctor's office. You don't need to go sit at a lab, do this. We're going to come right into your home. It takes 15 minutes. Someone's going to draw your blood. They're going to take your measurements, blood pressure, weight even grip strength, stuff like that. In your home? In your home. They're going to come. Or your okay. office. We go to offices too all the okay. time. Okay. Um, it takes, like I said, 15 minutes out of your day and sometimes less. And then we send you the results and we try to just explain everything to you, like where you're at. And so it's obviously up to you on the next steps you take, but here are like the three or four things you should do now. Um, and, and then just go from there. And so, so what would these results or you, did you do, I presume you did them on yourself. Like what did they tell oh, yeah. you about your health? Like you need to lose certain amount of weight. What did it tell you? So I had the typical issues. I think a lot of founders have when they're not taking care of themselves. So you have high lipid, high cholesterol, LDL, high IPOB, um, hypertension, uh, just high blood pressure and um, a lot of inflammation. Um, and so ah. you can detect this. So our panel is of 60, 60 biomarkers. And so these are the things you can detect. Um, and I'd say for, pe- for, our, for our patients that they're usually from mid-20s to the 50s. Um, and those are the things, metabolic issue, cardiovascular issue, and high blood pressure are the top three things that people have problems with. Okay. And you don't know. You don't know you have these problems. They're like these silent killers. You just kind of figure it out when you have a heart attack or, you know, one of these cardiovascular bad events. Um, yeah. And so I had these issues and I got to the point where it was like, everything was red, 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 red. And it just took me, you never want to get to that point when you're, and you were like 30. Yeah. Okay. I'm like early thirties when I'm discovering this. And, and it took me a long time just to like, get it all back down. You never want to get to that point. You like want to, maybe things are in the yellow and that's when you want to start like fixing that because it's so much easier. You don't have to focus on it as much and just like little things you have to do here and there. Wow. I posted a blog post the other day. I don't know why, but I just never thought to 
put out the reason why I started this company. And so I finally did that and then got a lot of good feedback. People like, oh, thank you for saying this. A lot of people on their second startup in particular was like, oh my God, that's exactly where I was. I just like screwed my health up and mm-hmm. I shouldn't have done that. Um, and yeah, and I think the thing I'm trying to tell people is that you can still make your company top priority and still be healthy. It's like totally in the realm of possibility. It's just having the knowledge, right? It's just not being in denial because I I mean, knowing founders the way I do, they're hyper-focused on their company. They don't have time to worry about their health and they eat badly and they are stressed. Yeah. And I think if it were easily pointed out to them, hold on, you're going down a bad path. They might do something about it. Well, I just think it's 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 the overwhelming. It like health as a category seems overwhelming and expensive and time consuming, and so it's so easy to push it off. So if the if in, if your company is like, we'll just break it down into bite sized pieces and sort of like make it easy for you to change course, yes. I can imagine that's incredibly appealing to your demographic. Yeah, and I think you know the a blood panel can't tell you everything, obviously, but it can yeah. tell you a lot. Um, and for most people, it's finding a hidden health risk that they have. I would say like well over 95, nine, I don't know, close to 100% of our patients are finding something that they didn't know they have an issue with. And, really? But, but yeah, 100%, close to 100%? No, close that's... to 100%. Yeah. Wow. Are you doing this just in New York right now? We are in New York. We're in San Francisco. We are in LA and Austin. Okay. I think the Levy's. Need to sign Yo, up. Yeah, we'll totally try it. I had no idea it was local. I just assumed you guys were still just on the East Coast. No, no, no. We're okay. in, um, yeah, no, we're where all yeah. the founders are. So what happens after you get the results? Then what's next for Instalab? Like what then follow on? Yeah, stuff so do they do? Um, there are a number of things you can talk to a physician. We have a longevity physician that you can talk to if you have more questions. Um, so some people do that, uh, the recommendations are pretty straightforward. And so our, what we tell people is if you do any of these, you should let us know and then retest in three, in about three months, because that's when you can start seeing a lot of these things actually moving in the right direction. And part of this is, and I think a lot of people like this, especially founders is because it's that feedback loop in the numbers. I was just going to say, this must totally appeal to the founders. Oh yeah, totally. Data. <laughs> and, you know, the way healthcare works right now is you go in the doctor's office, blah, blah, blah. They give you a super basic lipid panel and then you get the results like two weeks later or something. And maybe the doctor explains it to you. And then maybe in the next two or three years, you go, you go do it again. And then, and if results come back really bad, the doctor's going to be like, you should go lose some weight or, you know, something generic like that. And then what do you, you got to wait another year or two years to go see if that worked or not? You're like, no, you need to get that data immediately on whether you're doing the right thing or not. And also just getting that data gives you, it's more incentive to keep doing it because you know it's working versus having to wait around for a year to figure out if that works. Is there any similarity in onboarding phlebotomists to your platform as employing oh cleaners onto the home joy platform? What are the similarities there? Um, so we, so the main difference between that and this is we are hiring full-time employees or W2, no more 1099s. I'm done with that. The problem (laughs) as you know, Carol, with 1099s is many, um, some people like it. Some of the contracts actually like it because it's flexible work and whatnot. But the problem from our end is that you can't Mm -hmm. control quality. You can't standardize. You can't tell them this is the way you do the job. And so it kind of, you know, gets already. So we have hired full-time employees for this. Um, and our price point is a bit higher. So we're like, we're, we're, you know, we're able to take the taxes and everything, the workers comp, all the things that come with hiring W2 employers, are, you yeah. know, we're set on that. And I am dead set on this. <laughs> I'm doing it this way this time. That is the main difference. The similarities are, you know, you got to still interview them. You got to make sure folks, you know, at HomeJoy, the difference between like a one-star and five-star review was fr- was frequently actually not whether the clean went well, like whether it was actually clean or not, but was whether they showed yeah. up on time, like yeah. reliability. That's a big thing. And so wow. you got to yeah, you gotta interview for that. Um, and so it's similar interview um, 
questions you're asking. Um, but in terms of like whether they can do the job or not, obviously I got like, here's my, here's my arm, prick me. And I hope it doesn't hurt. And so, um, got, have my, my arm pricked a lot. Um, because one of the things is we want to make it painless as painless as possible because people are afraid of needles. It's, you know, what's so funny when I just, I made it a rule that I was not going to start a company that involved going into people's homes again and scaling up, um, uh, people in that manner. Um, but here I am. <laughs> Oops, you did it again. <laughs> oh, Adora. I have not learned any lessons from that. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Famous last words. I love the idea that you were saying like it, baby steps. Cause I think with health and weight loss and stuff, that's such a key. I mean, I should lose 30 pounds, but there's no way I'm going to set my sights on that. I just desperately cling to the hope that I can lose five pounds. And it's not, so here's the thing, like a lot of our patients are vitamin D deficient, which makes mm. sense. We're all inside. No sunlight. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> um, yeah. So there are supplements you can take, but you should get some sunlight because not only will it increase your vitamin D, but it's very, it's highly associated with like being in a good mood and um, the risks yourself from getting a depression and stuff like that. And so, you know, one, like the baby step there is like, okay, look at your calendar. You've got at least one phone call or one meeting on, on your calendar that you can make a phone call, convert that into just walking outside, taking that call when it's on the outside. So that's what I mean by baby steps is just like take your existing schedule, your existing lifestyle and just make tiny edits to it. So you yeah. start on the path of, of this sounds like Noom, right? Like um, <clears throat> it's similar in like that's very, very just diet. I yes, believe yes. I use Noom. And so they, and, oh, OK, but but so here's the thing. Don't they don't they just really break it down and just make it very easy to make incremental life you know, food changes? That's what that sounds like. So yeah, but I don't, I failed on Noom. I basically now just use it to track my weight that just is plateaus, um, basically. But yes, it, they try to make it baby steps. There's a, I don't know if you want to do this, Jessica. There's a, um, a startup by two former YC founders, Aaron Eba and um, oh, yeah. David Yang, and they, it's called Supportive. And basically you hook up, I'm on this now with all of them. You hook up your scale to the app and once you step on it it just like sends it out <laughs> to everyone and people people like support you i i'm sitting here with my mouth open because i'm thinking the horror of having everyone know my weight but you I get so much support oh it's, wait seriously adora tell me what happens you step on the scale <laughs> it goes out to a group of how many people well it's it's a group of you want oh, okay. so it's not everyone <laughs> okay so, so let's like just say your group is 20 pe friends or whatever. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's people just like cheering you on and then you can log like what you did the previous day and, and stuff like that. And, oh and God. it's, I, 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 uh, I use it cause, and I feel like four or five people following me. They're all, it's, it's like Aaron, David and Anson Sai. I don't know if you remember him. Of course I remember cool. Anson. Yeah. Okay. But back to Instalab. Yeah. I feel like every founder, this is a no brainer. Every founder should be doing this. Right? Yeah. Yes. What a fun time I had chatting and catching up with you. Adora, we loved having you on the show today. I loved hearing the old stories, but I'm also so excited to learn more about Instalab. It sounds fabulous. It does. Thank you. And thank you for having me. And uh, cool. hopefully we will see you soon. Great to see you, Adora. Right. Thank you. Okay. Bye. 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 That was so much fun catching up with Adora, Carolyn. I've been wanting to catch up with her for a long time, and it's funny that it ended up happening, you know, as as it as on a podcast recorded. But I, um, she's just, you know, a a person I really admire and um, love to talk to, and so I'm really glad she came on. I am too, and I, like I said, I rarely ask people about their failure because I think most people are in denial about their failure and won't be totally honest about why they failed. Yeah. That's, that's the trap you fall into. They have their own sort of made up their narrative. Reasons. Yeah. 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 Their own narrative. But I feel like I trust Adora to have been honest with herself about what, well, went and wrong. quite frankly, I think that's a job wreck for being a YC partner. Like you can't be in denial. You have to have extracted those lessons and then you 
one of the goals is to like, hey, let me tell you what you may not know, uh, you know, about this trajectory you're on or this thing you're deciding because like been there, done that. Like, so I, I think that's really important and it doesn't surprise me at all. And I will say, Adora, before she was a YC partner, I think, or maybe at the very beginning, she did a dinner talk. And it's one of my favorites because just tell, she was talking about her family a little bit and like the whole star child thing. Like, I'm still laughing about that. Like, it's just so funny to me. I had forgotten that quote. What have you done with my star child? <laughs> and no, I tell her, I just, my star child. John and I occasionally, it's like a meme in the Levy household. Occasionally we'll like bring it up because we were both chuckling about that for a long time. Anyway. Yeah. It was, it was great to talk to her. Yeah. I miss her at YC. I mean, I'm glad this new idea sounds really cool. It does. Um, so I'm glad she's working on that. And she's just so clearly someone who she's a founder at heart. Mm. You know, she wants to be building, making, changing, improving, um, things in the world. So I'm happy she's doing InstaLab, but I certainly do miss her at YC. Yeah, I do too. And, um, loved hearing her story. Yep. Loved that. Yeah. So I think it'll be a good one. Can't wait for it to come out. Same. All right. Well, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Talk to you soon. See you Bye. Bye. 